And Lord, as we now prepare our hearts to come to your word, Lord, we come asking to be fed by your word. We pray asking to be nourished by your word, to be strengthened, to be encouraged, perhaps to be confronted. Oh God, we recognize that you see our hearts, you know our hearts, you know our needs, and you have promised to provide for every need. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us our daily bread. Bless the preaching of your word, that we may not be mere understanders of your word, mere hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of your word for the glory of Christ to be seen in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5, as we will be continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, of course, the first Sunday of every month, we are in the New Testament, uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount. Specifically, right now, we're in the Beatitudes. Uh, every other Sunday, we are, we are in First Samuel. So, in that sense, uh, we have one foot in each testament. We believe that all Scripture, all of Scripture, is profitable, is beneficial for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. That includes both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And our confidence is in the sufficiency of God's Word to accomplish His purposes uh, by the study of His Word uh, as we avail ourselves to, uh, to that. But today as we continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, uh, specifically, again, we're looking at the section that we would refer to as the Beatitudes. It's good for us to remember that the words before us have a depth that is just incredible. It's unfathomable. It might seem so simple on the surface, and yet the depth of these words is greater than any man or any woman could ever uh, plumb in 10,000 lives. Uh, and so in one sense, Scripture is kind of like, you know when you're driving into heavy fog and it looks like the road only has about 10 more feet before you go off a cliff and you go 10 more feet and, oh, okay, I can keep going. There's 10 more feet and then there's 10 more feet and then there's 10 more feet. Well, it's, Scripture's kind of like that. You think that you've reached the depth only to, to discover that you're nowhere near. There's so much more uh, beneath the surface. It's also good for us to remember that uh, the text before us today is divinely inspired, and that while the words of Scripture before us might seem uh, like they're just fairly simple and, and straightforward, they are, again, incredibly deep, and not a single word in Scripture was written just haphazardly. No, every single word is written intentionally, is given intentionally, and that is certainly true of the Beatitudes, which have, as we've seen, a very specific sequence to them. Uh, Jesus isn't simply throwing out you know, some, some good virtues here and there uh, as, as if they're, they're randomly being scattered. No, there is a sequence to what he has given us. They're not just indiscriminate virtues. No, there is an order to the Beatitudes. So the Beatitude that we come to today... It might be the most incredible of all the Beatitudes. It is absolutely amazing to consider the Beatitude that we come today. For, for the person who is dead in their sins and rebellious unbelief, they would look at a Beatitude like this and they'd think, you know, this is just nothing but a, a bunch of silliness, you know, just a bunch, bunch of, of myths and tales, uh, you know, things that fairy tales are, are made of. But the words of our, of our text today, the words spoken by Jesus, were spoken by him who was truly God and truly man. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit himself breathed these words out through the pen of Matthew, who was an eyewitness to Christ's ministry and therefore was almost undoubtedly there as Jesus preached this sermon. But let's also remember that the Beatitudes, like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, were essentially given as a manifesto, as an outline, a kind of a picture of what the Christian life looks like or what it should look like. And thus, these are things that can never, ever be said of the unbelieving person. As Jesus is going through these, these blessings, these, these virtues, these aren't things that the unregenerate, unbelieving person uh, has 
in any sense. And so, for example, when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, uh, he wasn't you know, speaking about an unbelieving person who has just kind of a, a natural disposition to be meek. Uh, when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, he wasn't referring to the mourning that is just common to all of man. Uh, we know this because it would be untrue to say that all of humanity will be comforted. And yet G- what Jesus said was, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So it's only being said of the Christian. And so as we come to this incredible beatitude today that we find in Matthew 5.8, we should remember that it applies only to the Christian. It is an exclusive privilege that the Christian has. Only the Christian is capable of applying or having this virtue and the promise of blessing that accompanies it. Now, to review kind of briefly, the first three Beatitudes, you might remember, they kind of forced us to examine ourselves. Uh, They were concerned with our becoming aware of our condition, of our deficiency, and of our need. And they showed us that we must have an awareness of the fact that we have absolutely nothing to offer unto God, thereby being, uh, therefore we are poor in spirit. Uh, They showed us that we must be a people who mourn, uh, both over our deficiency before God and over the sin that renders us worthy of his wrath and judgment. Uh, They showed us that we must be meek, uh, willing to trust God to provide for our deficiencies rather than trying to compensate, rather than trying to make up for our deficiencies on our own. We can't. So what option do we have but to trust God? Then came verse 6, which is kind of a, a plateau verse. It forced us to stop looking within. It forced us to stop examining ourselves, to stop seeing how deficient we are in all of these ways, and to look outside of ourselves, to look beyond ourselves for the righteousness that God requires. And we saw that God promised to provide for that need of righteousness in Christ Jesus. This is, of course, where a person crosses over from death to life. That was where a person believed in God's promises and was credited with Christ's perfect righteousness so that he could stand before God as though he had lived Christ's perfect life. So the first result of this new life that was received in verse 6 was given to us in verse 7, which described the Christian as being blessed for being merciful. Uh, In his study of these verses, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was just a phenomenal expositor, a great preacher, a great theologian, he not only saw that there was a very specific progression to the Beatitudes, but he also noted that the first three Beatitudes uh, correspond with the fifth, sixth, and seventh Beatitudes. He notes in his commentary, therefore, that, quote, the man who realizes that he is poor in spirit and who is utterly dependent upon God is the man who is merciful to others, end quote. And so what we see is that the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, corresponds with the fifth Beatitude, blessed are the merciful. And so with that in mind, it does seem that one can make a fairly uh, convincing, a fairly strong argument that the second beatitude, which says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, corresponds with the beatitude that we come to today, which is the sixth beatitude. Uh, Matthew 5.8, which says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the reason that this makes sense, this correspondence between the second and uh, and and this Uh, beatitude, is that the mourning referred to in the second beatitude is a mourning over sin. Not only a mourning over sin that has already been committed, but there's a mourning over the fact that every molecule within the unregenerate person's being desires nothing other than to sin continually and constantly and perpetually, and that's all they desire. And there, becomes, there comes a point then where a person must mourn over that fact that everything within them just wants to sin. 
The person who sees that there is nothing but evil and nothing but wickedness within him by nature realizes that there is nothing good. Realizes that there is nothing worthy about himself. And what could possibly correspond to that? Well, not the wrath that we deserve, but being given as a gift of God, as a work that only God is capable of doing, being given pureness of heart. That's the exact opposite of being somebody who only wants to sin continually. And so there's a correspondence here. So, so let's start by observing that Jesus did not say, blessed are those who are outwardly pure. That's not what he said. What a false religion that is when somebody is only outwardly pure. As we've been going through our study of the book of 1 Samuel, we've seen that that is the world's religion. It's just a carnal, godless religiosity that's got no power because it's only external. It's not driven by the heart. It's not driven by faith. We've seen that this was King Saul's religion, right? It's the kind of religion that Paul was talking about when he warned Timothy and us, by extension, of those who hold a form of godliness and yet deny the power thereof. What does Paul say to do with such a person? He says, avoid them. Avoid them. Why? Because they're so deceptive. They've got this external show going on where they're checking all the right boxes and yet they are faithless it's all a facade it's all a show man's religion is just a powerless powerless religion man's religion says this man's religion says i have to do something in order to please god i have to do something in order to impress god i have to do something in order to work my way to god if i'm going to be saved that's man's religion christianity on the other hand true biblical christianity teaches that everything that is necessary for our salvation all the work that must be accomplished all the moral perfection that god demands of a person if he or she is going to be saved it was already done by jesus christ and so we have to look to him it is received along with every heavenly blessing by faith alone in jesus christ alone one of the problems if not the main problem with man's religiosity, man's religion, is that it is just so deceptive because it's only outward. And so it looks good. It looks good. Have you ever bought a counterfeit anything? It looks like the real thing, but it probably breaks down a lot faster. It's the same thing with humanity's default religion of outward religiosity. It's entirely possible, as anyone should be readily able to admit for an atheist to at least appear to be morally upright externally right in fact it's possible for an atheist to appear to be consistently morally upright he can help old ladies cross the streets and busy intersections he, he can make dozens if not hundreds and hundreds of youtube videos of himself going around and giving money and giving material goods to homeless people he, he can go and volunteer down at the soup kitchen every week let me make it a little bit more personal he can come to church every week he can sing the songs he can listen to the sermons he can study his bible in the week even he can pray before every meal he can even volunteer in some capacity at the church where he attends. And yet, in all of his outward moral uprightness, he can remain dead in his sins and dead in his unbelief and rebellion against God. Do you think that this has ever happened anywhere? It has. In fact, it happens all the time. In fact, Jesus warned us in the parable of the wheat and the tares that this is how it would be. And yet, and yet, we aren't to separate the wheat and the tares. That's something that will be done not by us, but by God's angels at the end of the age. We're reminded then 
not to uproot tares because we don't know when God might turn a tear into wheat. Praise the Lord for that. But let me make this all very clear for all of us. Being outwardly pure, being morally upright before people means absolutely zero with God. George Whitfield says this. He said, quote, He is not a real Christian who is only one outwardly. End quote. If you boast of your moral uprightness, if you boast of just what a good person you are, that alone is kind of its own reward, isn't it? You have what you wanted. You have people admiring how moral you are if you're boasting about that. Jesus would say of those who parade their, their, their outward moral uprightness before men, He'd say they've received their reward in full. And so let us understand that it is of utmost importance for us to see that Jesus does not say here, He does not say, blessed are the outwardly pure. No, He says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now here's what makes this beatitude so incredible. And why I think it's probably the most amazing of the beatitudes. It's because it's the exact opposite of Scripture's testimony about the heart of man by nature. What, is, what does the Bible say about the heart of man? It tells us actually the opposite from what the world tells us about the heart of man. What does the world say about the heart? Trust it. Follow it. Believe in it. And what does the Bible say? It tells us don't trust it. Don't follow it. Don't listen to it. Jeremiah 17.9 gives us a succinct summary of everything that the Bible teaches about the heart of the unregenerate man, the, the, the natural man's heart. It says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Now, let me ask you this. How, how many of you have known somebody who just pathologically lies? Like all the time. You can't believe anything that they say because everything is kind of tainted with an exaggeration or just an outright lie. The Bible says your heart is more wicked than that. It's more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Genesis 6.5 tells us how desperately sick the heart is. Uh, there we read of the human heart. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now let me ask you this. That was roughly 6,000 years ago, right? 5,500 years ago. Has, has, man's, has humanity's heart improved since then? Not one bit. Not one bit. Our condition has been, as a race, our condition has been the exact same ever since our forefather Adam ate of the forbidden fruit. We are a fallen race. And so this very day, all that the human heart is capable of producing is sin. The human heart to this day is a factory that's just pumping out one sin after another, just continual, perpetual wickedness by nature. And so we must understand that it is impossible in every way imaginable for the natural person to be pure in heart. If somebody's heart is only pumping out nothing but evil thoughts continually, how could they ever be pure in heart? No, the man with the natural heart is wicked. He's wicked at heart. Now, when we're referring to the heart here, we're not talking about the heart in a biological sense, obviously. Rather, we're referring to it in a biblical sense, a spiritual sense. Uh, and when we refer to the heart in a spiritual sense, uh, what we mean is we know that the heart of man refers to his emotions, his desires, and his will. It's the same thing that the world refers to when they say things like trust or, or, or follow or listen to your heart, right? They're not saying, you know, uh, put, your, put your, you know, thing on so you can listen to your heartbeat. No, they're saying trust your desires and your will and your emotions. So they don't mean the biological heart and we don't mean that, uh, and, and we mean the same thing that they mean here. So if it's impossible for the natural man 
to be pure, of, uh, pure in heart, and it is impossible. To whom was Jesus possibly referring here when he says this? The answer is he was referring to every single Christian who has ever walked the face of the earth. Every Christian is pure in heart. The question is, how? How did we become this way? How could we possibly have gone from only being perpetually evil in our hearts to being pure in heart? Surely, it cannot be of our own doing, right? If the intents of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continuously, then we would never, ever think to turn from evil and to become pure in heart. Not only would we never think to do that, but we would never desire to do that either. This verse, then we should understand, offers solid and irrefutable proof that God's grace must be, and indeed is, irresistible. God's grace must be, and indeed is, irresistible. Because the truth is that if the natural man could resist God's grace, every single last one of us would have resisted it to the death. And so the answer to the question, how, how did we become pure in heart, or how can a person become pure in heart, must begin with understanding that God's grace is irresistible. It's irresistible. Now, that's not to say that the person believes against their will. No, it's not that he brings us kicking and screaming into the kingdom, wishing that we could go back, uh, as some who would deny the concept of God's irresistible grace might argue. No, it's that he gives us a new heart, a pure heart, and he works in us in such a way that when the offer of God's free grace is presented to us in the preaching of the gospel, the intents of the thoughts of our hearts are suddenly not only evil continually any longer. Instead, we do something by God's grace that our old heart, the heart of stone, would always have prevented us from doing. That is, we put our faith in the promises that are offered to us in the gospel. Listen to the promise of the new covenant given through the prophet Ezekiel. God said to Ezekiel of the, of the new covenant to come, he said in Ezekiel 11, uh, verses 19 and 20, he said, I will take away the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. The promise is repeated again in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, where God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So when we do something good, like believe the gospel, like trust in the promises that are offered in the gospel. Why do we do that? Right there is your answer. Our heart has been exchanged. The heart of stone, a stone is just cold and lifeless, right? There's, there's no life to a stone. Is exchanged for a heart of flesh. Flesh reacts. Fresh flesh is, is living and active. So the pure in heart refers to everyone, we should understand, who has experienced God's redeeming, irresistible grace and has been a recipient of this new heart that has replaced the heart of stone. The pure in heart are those whose hearts have been quickened, have been made alive and awakened to the reality of our own sin and who have mourned over the sinful deeds that they've committed and over the sinful desires that they have acted on and still uh, and, and the desires which still remain to be subdued and gone to war against. This, by the way, obliterates any and every notion that a person has to clean up their act before they come to God in true faith. 
No, God is the one who must seek sinners. On their own, sinners will never, ever seek out God. And that's something that Scripture is explicit about. Romans 3.11 puts it this way. It says, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. I've seen people try to say somehow I am the exception to that rule. No, my friends, these are universal statements. They apply to absolutely everyone. They describe every single child of Adam who has ever lived. We do not seek God. Why not? Because that would be something good. And our hearts by nature can't do anything good. Being pure in heart. This is really what the essence of the Christian life is all about. We are to be a people who are pure in heart. And when I say that, I mean that we are to be a people who are separate, who are distinct from the world around us. That's not to say that we aren't to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Because to be of the world means to be anything but pure in heart. The pure in heart are blessed. They're happy. And that is an absolutely astounding thing to consider if we understand the wicked hearts of stone that we were born with. Now, remember that this is being preached on a hillside in Galilee, and there are people all around. Uh, there were undoubtedly Pharisees passing by or in the, the nearby vicinity. But you got to think about what a jolt this would have been to the Pharisees if they had ears to hear. I mean, these are people we're talking about who were known for being very upright, pious men outwardly on the outside. But Jesus called them hypocrites. Uh, a hypocrite was a type of actor that wore a mask, and he was saying that's what they're doing. That's what the, the Pharisees are doing, because they might have appeared to be morally pure on the surface. They might have appeared to be very upright, pious people outwardly, but on the inside, they were as wicked as the most wicked person you have ever met. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and pharisees, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now, if you saw the Pharisees, you know, they looked on the outside, externally, like very upright, uh, righteous men, right? They checked every single box on the religiosity to-do list. Did this, did this, did this, did this. Okay, I'm good now. But inwardly, they were filled with nothing but death and decay. They were driven by some motivation other than glorifying God and loving God. And this is why they were very careful to follow all the, the external things, all the external outward actions that religiosity required, but they neglected entirely the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Things that you can't demonstrate outwardly. Things like uh, having the proper motivation in doing things. Things like Loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. How could Jesus, looking at the Pharisees, how could he possibly have known what was in their hearts? And the answer is pretty simple. It's because he was God in the flesh. And God looks past all the external facades and mumbo-jumbo to the heart of man God looks at the heart. And so Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the people who do all the things that are required by the law. And praise the Lord that he didn't say that because that would have excluded everyone except Jesus himself from being blessed in this way and from being able to say that they will see God. And he doesn't say, blessed are the intellectuals, the philosophers, the scholars, now, that still would have put this blessing well beyond the grasp of most of us, at least me. No, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. 
Blessed are the pure in heart. In other words, blessed are those who are upright, not only outwardly, not only on the surface, but whose very center of being has been touched, has been affected, and has been redirected by God's redeeming grace. As we consider all the wars and all the conflict and moral corruptions and scandals going on in the world today, we must see that the problem is the human heart. That's ultimately what it boils down to. Why is the world in the state of turmoil that we see it in today? It's not because the climate is changing. It's not because we have the wrong person in, our, uh, in, in the Oval Office as our president. It's not because of poverty. It's not because of all the social ills uh, that exist. Uh, and this is to say that our problem is not that we come from a flawed environment that, you know, if you just fix the environment, you fix the people. That's not the way it works. No, we, we have a flawed environment because the human heart is desperately wicked. That's why the world is in turmoil. That's why the social environments uh, that we see are so flawed and so fallen. And changing our social environment will not produce morally upright people. It just won't. It won't produce people who love and serve the Lord. Uh, let's not forget that Adam and Eve lived in a place where there was no sin. There was no corruption. And yet what happened? They lived in paradise. They lived in, in, in the perfect social environment. And sin nevertheless prevailed in them. So even a return to paradise wouldn't alleviate the social evils of our day. And this is the mistake that so many in our day are making. What does psychology say? Psychology says, uh, you know, so-and-so, this person over here, the reason that they are a criminal, the reason that they, they are a mass murderer, the reason they're a drug dealer, the reason whatever they are, is because they're a product of their environment. If only this person had had a better environment growing up, they wouldn't have gone this direction. No, it's because we're a product of a fallen race. Now, maybe it could be said that there are certain social factors that produce greater sin than others do, uh, outwardly, perhaps, but inwardly, it really makes no difference. Okay, sure, a, a, a boy who's raised without a father, he, he's more likely to become a criminal. He, he is. That, the statistics are very clear about that. But he's still going to be a sinner, if you're just looking outwardly, inwardly, he's the same. And so if we want a more moral society, the answer isn't to create a better social environment. The answer isn't to put uh, you know, somebody better in office or to affect some type of political change. The answer is the preaching of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. That's the only solution. The gospel is the answer because the gospel alone has the power to change the heart. That's the means that God has ordained and the means that He uses. Now, we've been speaking of pureness of heart in the sense of being morally upright. Uh, and it certainly does include that and involve that, maybe primarily. But there's a second sense in which we can understand this word pure. It can not only mean upright and, and good and moral and things like that, but it also implies singularity. It implies singularity. What do I mean by that? Well, listen to what James says. He writes this in James chapter 4, verse 8. He says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Oh, what a burden it is for a man to be double-minded. The idea of being double-minded double gives you an image of a person who loves God and who also loves the world. And therefore, he doesn't resist the devil as he ought to, which is what James mentioned in the immediately previous verse. Now, you might remember uh, the, the battle, the inner battle that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7 
For he says in verses 22 and 23, he says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. We see Paul complaining about the fact that he's not doing what he does want to do and he is doing what he doesn't want to do. We, we see and we can all undoubtedly relate to the struggle that was taking place within Paul. And yet, he was not double-minded about it. There was nothing double-minded about it in his mind. He wrote in uh, verse 19, For the good that I want, I do not do, but, the, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Now, if he had said, I do want, on both of those, that would be double-minded. But no, he says, the good that I want, I don't do. The evil that I don't want, I do. So he didn't say that he practiced the evil that he wanted instead of doing the good that he wanted. It wasn't that he wanted both. He only wanted the good, but he practiced both. But his mind, his mind only wanted what was good. So if he had said, I want both, that's what it means to be double-minded. No, his desire was to do what was good and not to do what was evil. So he is single-minded here. It wasn't, however, sufficient to prevent him from sinning. But it prevented him from wanting to sin, desiring sin. Let me just say this. If you can relate to the struggle that Paul records for us in Romans chapter 7, which happened as a believer, he had already been converted when he's talking about this struggle. This wasn't a struggle that existed prior to his salvation, as some people have argued. No, this is a struggle that happened within him as a Christian because he desired what was good. The, the unregenerate man doesn't desire what's good. That's how we know that it's not talking about Paul before salvation. There's this thing called the new Paul perspective, which is just ridiculous, and you want to avoid it. But listen, if you can relate to the struggle that Paul experienced in Romans chapter 7, that is a very, very strong indication that you are pure in heart. I want to make sure that you understand that purity of heart doesn't mean, however, that you are sinless. If there's one thing that can cause us to despair and cause us to be discouraged, it's to get this idea that we should be at least a little bit closer to sinlessness. Listen, Peter still sinned even after his conversion. Toward the end of, of his ministry, uh, you know, uh, uh, Paul sinned, continued to sin. Paul was still saying at the end of his ministry when he wrote to Timothy, uh, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. He's saying that as the most mature Christian we can possibly, probably uh, imagine. That he's the chief of sinners even at that point in his life. John, the apostle, still sinned. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. So the fact that as a legitimate Christian, you still continue to sin and sin and sin, it's not an indication of double-mindedness necessarily. Rather, as A.W. Pink said, he wrote this, he said, quote, one of the most conclusive evidence that, evidences that we do possess a pure heart is the discovery and consciousness of the remaining impurity that continues to plague our hearts, end quote. So here's the thing that marks a mature Christian. It's not that they are becoming sinless. Maybe they're becoming more sinless, maybe not. The primary thing is they're becoming more and more acutely aware of the remaining sin within them. Now, if you were to look back on the moment that you first became a Christian, maybe you were like me and you thought that you would have had it all figured out uh, by now at this point and that you would have slain all remaining sin by this point. But the truth is that Christian maturity does not mean being sinless, <laughs> not even close. Christian maturity simply means becoming more and more acutely aware of the remaining sin within us. But let me ask you this. 
even though that sin remains in you. And even though it might until the day you die, do you long for the day when your mind and your body will no longer have to wage war against one another? The desires of your flesh versus the desires of your heart. Do you long for the day when that battle will be over and done with? When the flesh will be slain once and for all? Do you look forward to the day when you will no longer have a flesh nature to contend with day in and day out? Because the promise here is that the pure in heart will see God, which sounds remarkably close to what John was describing when he wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that we know that when He appears, in other words, when Jesus returns, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We will see Him just as He is, and we will be like Him. What does that mean? What does it mean to be like Jesus? Well, it, it probably means a lot of things, but one of those things is not only freedom from any temptation or desire to sin. Don't you look forward to that? Having no more temptation and no more desire to sin? It means not only that, but it also means a freedom from ability to sin. Not only will you not be tempted, not only will you, will you not desire, you won't be able to sin. That's something that even Adam didn't have in the Garden of Eden. The day is coming when, as John describes of those who will enter into the heavenly Jerusalem that awaits us, in Revelation 21, verse 27, he says, Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you're a Christian, if you are pure in heart, you will enter into this glorious city, but you'll enter in without your flesh nature, without any defilement, without any ability to defile. In the following chapter, John writes in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So this is going to be a place of absolute purity where no corruption, no wickedness, no sin, no defilement will ever, ever enter in. Now, we should, we should understand that there's a sense in which we have been washed of our sin, and there's a sense in which we are being washed of our sin, and there's a sense in which we will once and for all finally be washed of our sin. So we're declared judicially pure before God the moment that we first believe. And throughout the rest of our lives, that's called justification, and then throughout the rest of our lives, we have sanctification. After believing, the Holy Spirit urges us and leads us on paths of righteousness away from paths of sinfulness. And the day is coming when every Christian will be once and for all purified from all evil and from all influence of the flesh, once and for all, when we are brought into His holy presence for eternity. Now when we talk about purity of heart, ultimately there's only one man who has ever been completely, completely pure, of heart, pure in heart, and that is Jesus. And so ultimately, when we talk about purity of heart, ultimately we mean being like Jesus and growing in his likeness. What was Jesus' greatest desire? It was to please the Father. It was to do the will of the Father. Is pleasing God, is doing the will of God your greatest desire? Because if it is, I have to believe that you will take the, the pursuit of practical holiness very seriously in your life. Being keenly aware that we are to pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. As we read it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Lloyd-Jones notes that, quote, you and I are meant for the audience chamber of God. You and I are being prepared to enter into the presence of the King of Kings. 
Friends, do you see your life that way? Do you see your life as a time for you to prepare for that moment when you enter into the king's chambers? Do you believe that the day will come when you will stand before him in glory? Do you imagine that you will enjoy glorifying God forever in his presence if you don't also enjoy it now? I urge you, I urge you to set your affections and your desires on that glorious day because it is sure to come. Think of it often, the way that, that a bride-to-be thinks often of her wedding day to come and prepare yourself for that day knowing that nobody will enter into the new heavenly Jerusalem only to look back on their lives and say, man, you know what? I wasted so much time uh, preparing myself for this day. If only I would have lived for more worldly things. Nobody's going to say that. Not one person. John says this. John says in 1 John 3.3, 3, everyone who has his hope, this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Does that describe your life? Thomas asked to see the Father, and Jesus replied by saying, he who has seen me has seen the Father. That's, of course, from John chapter 14, verse 9. And, of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus is the Father. What Jesus was saying there is that he has revealed what the Father is like. He shows us what the Father is like because he and the Father are one. Now, Granted, you haven't seen Jesus with your physical eyes. And yet, if you are a Christian, let me ask you this. Have you not looked upon him whom you have pierced? Not with your physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes of faith. Have you not mourned over the sin that caused him to be pierced? You have. If you're a Christian, you have. If you have believed on Him, then in one sense, you have seen Him with spiritual eyes, with eyes of faith. So then we see that this is really a promise that is partially fulfilled in the here and now for, uh, for the redeemed, and it will be completed in heaven in the fullest sense in Christ Jesus. We live in that place between the, the already and the not yet. Are you using this time to prepare yourself for the not yet. That's what our time on earth is for. If you haven't ever believed in Jesus, if you haven't received the new life that's promised in His glorious gospel, it's true that the only way for you to change is for God to change you Himself. And yet it's equally true that the Scriptures strongly, strongly admonish you to seek the Lord while He may be found, to call upon Him while He is near. Yes, the work is God's, but let me tell you what God isn't doing. God is not holding you back from coming to Christ and saving faith. You are. You're the one who's preventing yourself from coming to Christ and saving faith. God isn't preventing you from seeking Him or from calling on His name. Remember what James said. He said, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. He says, cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. So there's a sense in which God must do it. At the same time, we have to be striving for it too, knowing that God's the one that does the work. But the fact that you cannot purify your own heart will not be an excuse for anyone to have spent their lives swimming around in cesspools of moral filth and wickedness. Do you not see that your time is short? They say that the only two sure things in life are death and taxes. Well, taxes are due on April 15th. When are you going to die? The fact is, none of us know. None of us know. It could be tomorrow. It could be tonight. Tomorrow is never promised. Five minutes from now is never promised. And so the time for you to plead with God to save you, to plead with Him to to fill you with faith in His only Son and to give you a new pure heart is always, always for the unbeliever right now. Right now. But those of us who have been made by God's grace, pure in heart, will one day have an honor that even... Moses didn't have. We will see God. And his promise is that he's preparing us for 
that glorious day. In fact, he's causing all things to work together to prepare us for that glorious day. And yet we're also repeatedly urged by the scriptures to prepare ourselves for that day. And so to that end, by God's grace, may we both trust that God is purifying us and may we commit ourselves to purifying ourselves and to walking in a manner that's pleasing to God, a manner worthy of our calling, just as He is pure, knowing, believing this promise that the pure in heart will see God. See your life, friends, as your opportunity to prepare for that glorious day. Fight sin and strive to live each day for God's glory with single-mindedness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is true. It is inerrant. And it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. O Lord, we pray that You would cause us to be aware of the sin that remains within us. We pray that You would help us to hate that sin, to go to war with that sin, and to do so with a single mind, a single-mindedness about our lives. Help us, O Lord, to love what You love and to hate what You hate. Help us to not only walk in Your ways, but to delight in walking in Your ways according to Your good will and pleasure. Oh, Father, we pray, we pray that we would be pure in heart. We pray that by your Spirit working within us, we would not only be aware of sin, but that we would have the power and the endurance to go to war with sin, waging war by the power of the Spirit working within us. Oh, God, we pray, we pray that you would be merciful to us. And we thank you for promises like this. We thank you for the fact that we know that we can stand on your promises because it's impossible for you to lie. We pray that our lives will be changed as we consider your promises and as we stand on your promises for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.